For two years now on Circle Back, we've been sharing stories of entrepreneurs in Nashville. Today's story is different. These business builders were 47 and 50, older than most. They didn't really set out to be entrepreneurs and really weren't wired that way. They just took advantage of an opportunity that presented itself. Sometimes just taking what you already know and figuring out a way to do things a little better can make a huge difference. But you know, there are different kinds of entrepreneurs, you know, one who takes a risk. I'm less inclined to take that personal risk. Today on Circle Back. You put me in a job, I'll take a lot of risk to get over the goal line. The partners behind Pinnacle, a name that's risen high in the Nashville skyline by embracing the most down-to-earth values. We wanted to have more power, more ability to control our own destiny. Is there some way we could get in business for ourselves? Why did two middle-aged bankers with nothing left to prove bust out in a crowded competitive field at a chancy time? We worked on several things before we landed on, hey, here we go, we're gonna start Pinnacle Bank. The way they tell it, it boils down to just three words. A better way. People really like it at Pinnacle. There's less politics, they have a seat at the table, their opinion matters. Our principal connection is a connection at the heart with our clients, to know them, to care about them, and and those kinds of things. Banking is a service business. It's a people business. I'm Rob McCabe, Chairman of Pinnacle Financial Partners. I'm Terry Turner, President and CEO of Pinnacle Financial Partners. From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, this is Circle Back, where we trace the life cycle of the startup from bright idea to big payoff. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. Well, I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm one of 10 children, oldest of 10 children. That's Rob McCabe. We had five boys and five girls. We had a split-level home with really one bathtub, and uh, I remember that, three in the tub at the same time. I never remember wanting anything or needing anything. We had a great life. My father, he was in advertising, and... uh, he was self-employed for a good while, and he was with a number of agencies. He, but he passed away in 1970. He had an aortic aneurysm when I was 19. Well, I was mostly worried about my mother and the youngest children, but uh, we had a tremendous amount of help from the community. I thought my parents had, it was a small community, and uh, had a tremendous amount of goodwill. And I think my father was uh, really a, a people person. He was an outbound person. He uh, was a good civic person. Spent more of his time helping people than he did making money. I know that. I remember (laughs) that. But uh, we, you know, we didn't really need anything or want anything. And uh, I never remember really having money or needing money. What... Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, went to the University of Tennessee. After that, I spent uh, four years on active duty in the military, 
back uh, to graduate school, got an MBA on the GI Bill at the University of Tennessee, and started working at uh, Park National Bank in Knoxville at night. I might just uh, yeah. jump in here. We, uh, Rob and I met at Park Bank in 1979. Terry Turner was on the lookout for Rob. I grew up in suburban Atlanta, a little area called Dunwoody. And uh, my parents' best friends had lived in Knoxville and were good friends with Rob's wife's family. And so they heard I was going to be in Knoxville working on engagement. They said, hey, well, you know, we know this guy up there, Rob McCabe. He's in the banking business. If you run into him, tell him we said hello, that kind of thing. So anyway, I show up and go to work at the bank. They introduced me to a handful of people one of whom's Rob McCabe, you know, it was, it was an amazing coincidence. And uh, it's hard to describe how friendships work. You know, you can't say, well, here's the formula. I mean, Rob and I just sort of connected almost immediately. We had a good time together. We enjoyed working together. We enjoyed playing together and so forth. But it was just sort of a quick and easy friendship. That's a difference of about five years in age and quite a contrast in their upbringing. Man, I, I don't have anything nearly as interesting as that. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I was the younger brother. We had two boys in the family. So I would say in many ways I'm a classic younger brother. I'm a competitive person. You know, you come here having to fight and compete and try to beat somebody that's bigger and stronger and faster than you are. And so I'm uh, fiercely uh, competitive. I went to public schools uh, all the way through, um, went to Georgia Tech. I graduated from Tech in roughly three years and went to work for Arthur Anderson as a consultant back in the late 70s, which was a job I loved. I always loved business. You know, I think I talked to different people. They thought they were going to be a lawyer, a doctor, or whatever. Once I got clear I wasn't going to be playing baseball for the Atlanta Braves, I mean, it was just about business, you know. That's all I really wanted to do and all I thought about and so forth. And so uh, that was kind of a natural spot for me. I always liked it. The two hit it off. Terry, the focused consultant at Arthur Anderson. Terry actually was trained and had credentials and was performing some pretty complicated functions on the IT set of our business. So uh, I admired what he was doing. And uh, Rob, still exploring. I didn't have quite that level of ambition. I just stumbled into banking uh, only because some people recruited me to go to the bank. Their serendipitous teamwork would serve them well. We played some basketball uh, together. I, we, I mean, I never forget, we went out to Inskip to uh, a public gym, and we're playing basketball, and a guy was guarding Rob that was on my team. Rob was eating him alive, man. He was shooting the, <laughs> shooting the lights out. You know, and I thought, Billy, get out of the way. Let, let me handle him, you know? And so I was guarding Robbie. I was fouling him. I was hacking him. I was knocking him down, and he was still lighting it up. So I promise he can hit a – at those days, he could hit a 20-foot jump shot for sure. Their bank, Park Bank, was the second largest in Knoxville. And in the late 70s, deregulation was the number one topic in the banking biz. The biggest part of regulation for the banking industry primarily had to do with interest rates. They got a ton of regulations, but the big thing that impacted the business was the regulation of, of interest rates. And so basically they would mandate what rates could be paid on deposits 
and they would control in large measure through usury laws what rates you could charge on loans, and that spread was wide, and so you didn't have to be very smart to make a living there. And so the idea was, okay, as we deregulate, and I think the thing that excited a lot of bankers there were some that were more entrepreneurial saying, hey, if you get rid of that regulation, you know, we'll play this game. Don't mind narrowing the spread here. You know, we'll have more products. We'll innovate. We'll take share. We'll do those kinds of things. I think what we were known for was we actually went out and made calls and tried to get other people's business, which shook everybody up. And we were very strong in treasury management and investment management securities business, those sorts of things. We had all the trust uh, products, primarily personal trust. So we, we marketed to the whole need set of the average middle market company and the principals. Most of the other banks were uh, not that way. They were living off the spread that Terry talked about, and uh, they may make mortgages, but that's about it. They just had a limited product line, limited ambition, and were making a good living, but aspirationally, they weren't trying to achieve. Here's a way to think about uh, what happened. Did you know uh, checking accounts don't carry an interest rate? And so, to Rob's point, uh, we built, he led the effort to build a cash management, what we called it in those days, treasury management function at Park Bank. And so the principal thing that happens there was you'd create a cash pool out of somebody's deposits and you would sell them a repo, a repurchase agreement, which was a, really a technical instrument that effectively you'd give grant them securities as collateral for a loan and uh, you'd swap it out every day. So when you get to the bottom of all the technical stuff, what it did was pay interest on their excess checking balances is what it did. So uh, we were out selling it aggressively in the market, trying to pick up market share. And I never forget there was a banker that ran a bank <laughs> in Knoxville, and his comment was, "It'll be a cold day in hell before I'll pay interest on checking." You know, well, I promise you, it wasn't a cold day in hell. He was paying. I mean, that was the progression. That's where it went. We were just on the front end of that. It didn't take long. These forward-thinking go-getters toy with the idea of starting a business. And so we rambled around out there and talked to the guys that I would say were the legendary business people in, in Knoxville. And one of the guys that we visited and talked with was Jim Haslam. Welcome to First American Bank. Welcome to First American Bank. Welcome to First American Bank. Bienvenidos a First American Bank. We got bought in 83, which was somewhat of a surprise to us. Welcome to First American. And uh, First American was a serial acquirer of community banks and a, probably a pretty good partner at the time. And uh, that occurred. And we didn't have enough sense of what was going on in the industry or really what a shareholder was because we weren't really given any stock. You know, what I remember about it, you really didn't know how to behave. Generally, when somebody gives you your money, you do what they want. But neither one of us got any money, so we didn't think that way. It was a bigger company, probably had more opportunity in it. And I think, sure enough, they sent a industrial shrink over there to 
talk to a handful of us and figure out, you know, who had potential to do more in the company and so forth. And happily, we we got on the list. They definitely sent uh, an industrial psychologist over there. And I, I don't know, Robbie, I think he talked to 12 people, sort of yeah. a management committee type thing of Park Bank. But yeah, he interviewed every one of us and wrote a report and gave it to the leadership first American and said, you know, I think really sort of put us in three categories of people that had more potential and ought to get more opportunity, people that were good at their jobs, but probably well situated and people that were probably not going to be effective in the new company. I mean, the the fact of the matter was there was far more opportunity than I had originally anticipated. And I think we were subsequently, we were able to take advantage of it. We wanted to have more power, more ability to control our own destiny. And so we spent some time, Rob and I, during the early days there as part of First American, trying to figure out, is there some way we could get in business for ourselves? And so we went through this elaborate thought process and said, okay, well, we don't have any capital, so that's going to be a that's going to be a limiter. And uh, we thought, well, but we do know how to run a business, manage a business. Maybe we can find some wholesale business or, you know, some business that doesn't require an immense amount of capital. Maybe we can do that. We looked at sort of silly stuff, you know, John Deere dealerships and things like that. You know what I'm saying. One of the guys that we visited and talked with was Jim Haslam. And uh, I'll never forget, we... Uh, went out, visited with Jim, told him what was on our mind and so forth. He kind of laughed. He said, listen, you guys are better suited. He called us fan bankers, which was First American National Bank fan bankers. You know, he said, you guys are better suited to be fan bankers than you are entrepreneurs. So anyway, I guess we sort of took that advice, you know. we Yeah, First American was really a good experience. It was just, uh, we had really all kinds of different opportunities including the opportunity to watch and learn from an expensive mistake. I think it was 1997 is when we purchased a deposit guarantee bank, which was headquartered in Jackson, Mississippi. It was a similarly sized company and uh, maybe just a little smaller, but about the same size as we were. You know, had a long reputation, a good heritage as a banking company and so forth. But uh, basically it ended up being a competitive bid situation and unfortunately we were the high bidder. And if you look, study bank failures, what makes them, bank mergers and acquisitions, what makes them fail, uh, really two overall causes. One, you overpay, or two, you have some sort of cultural mismatch. And, uh, you know, if you overpay, it causes you to have to build, you know, strip out too much cost. You screw up the service. You run off clients and can't hold the revenues. That happened to us. And if you have a cultural mismatch, you lose people, have turnover. They take their clients with them. And that happened to us. We had overpaid, couldn't produce all the synergies we had hoped to produce and and uh, so forth. And, um, you know, at that point, we were vulnerable, and AmSouth became interested in us. They were also interested in rolling up. I think that was sort of a welcomed backdoor, if you will, because we were sort of struggling. They really didn't want any of the people, of our people. Out of our top 24, 25 people, they offered one job. Rob had an opportunity to take a job with him, as he mentioned, probably a lesser. My instinct told me not to do it. 
in my case, uh, I use this phrase. This is the word I was told. We, I was deselected. Yeah. I was more confused about what I should do. Should I try to stay with AmSouth or should I do something else? But my, my risk antenna told me that this wasn't the right group to associate with. Terry would be, but he's a classic entrepreneur. Uh, he can see opportunity and and uh, be optimistic about it. You know, I see opportunity, but uh, it's less clear to me how to win, you know. But once you put me in the game, I'm going to try to beat you every time and beat you most of the time, you know. I say Rob's a pessimist. He says, no, no, I'm a realist. I say, that's what all the pessimists say. <laughs> Genuine partnerships in our professional lives are a rare thing. In too many places, the spirit of competition has become toxic. We have a, another partner, another founder named Hugh Queener. And Hugh and Rob and I have all been working together since Park Bank in the late 70s. And, you know, we've had a little disruption in service here and there and yon, but mainly we've been together through, through that period of time. And Hugh and I had had some conversations about starting a uh, indirect lending business, a car finance business. So at that point, it was like, hey, forget messing around here trying to form a finance company. We'll have an opportunity to start a bank. Responsibility, a place where we can all win together. Hey, Rob, why don't you come on and join us and let's start this bank. We'll have an opportunity to build a big company. The world is full of banks. What we need more of are partners. Pinnacle Financial Partners. It's important to note, Pinnacle Bank was started in Nashville and is a Nashville success story. But it was thanks to First American that got Terry and Rob to move to Nashville in the first place. So you may be wondering now, how do you build a bank? For starters, the banking business is a regulated business. You have to have a license to be in it. We call it a bank charter. You can get a charter, a national bank charter from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or you can get a state-chartered bank in the state of Tennessee uh, from the Tennessee Department of Financial Institutions where the FDIC would be your primary regulator. You can't imagine the volume of paperwork. An application for a bank charter, I would say, would be 6 to 12 inches high, a stack of paper. So then game one is, look, we got to build a pro forma here for what we're going to do at forma. You can imagine how valuable a 10-year pro forma is on a bank where you don't have one employee, you don't have one client, you don't have any capital, you know, you don't know what interest rates are going to do from, you know, week to week, let alone what they're going to do over 10 years. But that was the challenge. So uh, we, we built all that information, pro forma, business case, all those kinds of things. For me, it was a great learning process. It, when we were at First American, it was a pretty exalted 
lifestyle, right? I had offices up there next door to each other on the sixth floor, which was the executive floor. And I, I mean, I don't know how many square feet. We had showers. Yeah, showers, bathrooms, you know, wood paneling, sitting rooms, conference rooms. I mean, it was, it was an exalted lifestyle for sure. So, you know, I never forget, I'm sitting in an outplacement center out in Brentwood with Hugh, and Rob was in a different outplacement center. I was trying to learn how to use an Excel spreadsheet. I mean, I didn't even know how to do it, but I put together an Excel spreadsheet where I laid out who were the people I thought I could hire, how much could they bring in loan and deposit volumes by month, and you know, start rolling this thing up. And Hugh, who's the technical guy among us, is chief administrative officer of the company, and he's designed bank software, installed bank software literally all over the Western Hemisphere, you know. Uh, So he's a technical guy. I'm just trying to learn how to use this Excel spreadsheet. You know, I'd get it all screwed up. I'd ask him to take it home at night and put it back together and bring it back to me the next day. But that's how we built the Proformas was on an Excel spreadsheet here for how we're going to build this thing. So once we turn all that stuff in, they want to interview you. They send back a list of 26 questions. And the first question was, we're concerned that Messrs. Turner and McCabe are country club bankers and won't know how to, you know, run a small operation. And it's so funny, you know, Rob reads these things and he takes personal offense at it. He's like, man, we need to go down there and tell those people. You know, I'm like, look, Rob, we're just going to write the answer here. You know, we're just going to tell them what we can do. And yeah, he's had to turn tell back some, there's some arrogant jokers down there. <laughs> <laughs> Subsequently got upset with you for outperforming your pro performance. Yeah, that, that, yeah. that was... <laughs> this is after we had a bank charter. We're just out of the gate. We were running faster than we said, which meant, you know, the banking business is a tight capitalization requirement. You got a chin to it. And so we're going to outrun our capital. And so we've got to go down and visit with the regulators. We had a plan. We're just going to borrow some money and crank it in as capital to the bank. And, um, you know, man, I'm down there with this PowerPoint presentation. I'm about five slides into it. And this guy just cuts me off and interrupts. He said, so let me just get this straight. You're not on your pro forma, and so you want us to change. And I said, well, yeah, to be clear, we're not on our pro forma. We're ahead of our pro forma. He's like, man, we don't care. You know, if you're not on your pro forma, it tells us you can't budget or you can't execute one or the other. He said, so it's like, okay, guys, I guess we'll just have to go home and come up with a different plan. But, you know, it it was a little bit of a humbling experience there as you come out of the gate. They had put together a founder group. I think at the time we were telling people they'd need to put in at least $100,000 if, you know, if they wanted to do it. And so uh, we talked 14, 12 people signed up, said we'll do it, and they invested anywhere from $100,000 to $750,000 to get started and borrowed money from SunTrust Bank. And, uh, you know, we signed the guarantees and whatnot to capitalize the company that ultimately turned into the holding company for Pinnacle. So the path was, in in terms of the capital raise, uh, we had the money that we borrowed to create capital for the company, but obviously that wasn't going to be enough to capitalize the bank. In August of 2000, we capitalized the company with an IPO. 
and we set out to raise $25 million, which at the time was a pretty large capital raise for a, a de novo bank. There'd been a few larger, but not many, none larger in the state of Tennessee. So that's what we set out to do. We were the last IPO done in August 2000. That's a dot-com bubble. So we're out there with the world going to heck in a handbasket. J.C. Bradford helped us. J.C. Bradford was going to do this transaction for us, and they'd done several similar, smaller but similar transactions. It's like no sweat. They're all our friends, and this is going to be easy. You get the dot-com bubble, but in addition to that, J.C. Bradford was sold twice, not once, but twice before we got to market. And so now you've got some uh, investment banker from New York looking at a $25 million IPO for a company that doesn't have any revenue thinking, you know, what in the heck is this about? And uh, honestly, they wanted to cut and run. And uh, our buddies at J.C. Bradford said, hey, this isn't going to be a good way for you to start in Nashville if you stiff these guys. We need to figure out how to do it. They were having difficulty with their clients because of all of the marginal IPOs they had sold to that, those clients. So they were very skeptical about a bank, and very skeptical. The original stock price was $10 a share. Most of it was people that we knew. Individual guys like me and you. They're people. There well, weren't any institutional investors. The number is about a 1,700% return on the original investment. But they've been really happy. <laughs> yeah. They've been happy in, with the appreciation. Plus, they 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 want to support us. I think the early days were fun. You know, any time you're starting something that's new, that you know, it's an optimistic time where you know you're going to take the hill together and so forth. So we started with 34 associates, which was a lot for a, a bank startup, and. We've been aggressive errors uh, from the start. Aggressive, yet selective. Every new hire had to have at least a decade of experience. We only hired people with 10 years of experience that, uh, as we say, were known and trusted in the market that had books of business on the line side. And we've adhered to that discipline on all our hiring, except when you have acquisitions, you kind of get who they have. So that changes how we have to spend our time in terms of you know, adding financial literacy training to people. But by and large, that created great opportunity earlier. Everybody in the company participates in annual cash incentives. Everybody. Tellers, lenders, back office, IT, everybody participates in annual cash incentives. And we all make our incentive money based on the exact same thing. That same thing we make it on is we have to clear a threshold for loan quality. In other words, we can't let people make bad loans today and collect a bunch of incentives and charge the loans off in the future. So you, we got a control feature, so we measure problem loans, and as long as we're not outside that, then the incentive is generally a function of two things, EPS, earnings per share, and revenue. Grow the top line, grow the bottom line, and that's how we make our money. And that number's his number, it's my number, it's the teller's number, it's the branch office manager's number, everybody's chasing that number. And so it creates more sense of camaraderie and working together and working in the same direction that's different than what goes on in most banks. 
Most of the people that we've hired that are successful practitioners, they're more like a little bit more like a law firm environment where they have their own practice, their own book of business, their own credibility built with that book of business. They like that lifestyle. They don't want to supervise people. They don't want to be in charge. They don't have a professional aspirational need to uh, manage. We haven't lost a person because of pay that I can think of. Yeah, we the the turnover rate for us, you know, over this time period would be north of ninety five percent retention, less than five percent turnover, and that's everybody. I mean, that's the people that retired, the people that died. I mean, the whole thing, and that's really unheard of in the banking business. But a lot of it, I think, just demonstrates this idea that people. Bankers, because if they're really good bankers, are service people-oriented kinds of folks. They like this idea of team pay. I'm not saying everybody the first time we have the conversation with them because it's new to them. So you got some selling to do, and it takes some work, and you know all that kind of stuff. But we don't lose them when we get them. They they stay with us. Every associate, every one, is an owner working together, not against each other, empowered to make decisions without asking permission. This is Sherry. This is Linda. This is David. How can I help you? This level of engagement means enrichment for those willing to invest in the idea that we started with. People matter. And partners matter. Pinnacle Financial Partners. Terry Turner and Rob McCabe can and do finish each other's sentences. They're a classic example of what economists call complementary goods, like milk and cereal. They rely on each other to add value. I think the most entrepreneurial thing I do every day is client selection. You know, I have to make judgments. I don't care how good the deal looks or how bad the deal looks, if you're dealing with the wrong client with the wrong values, then you don't take that risk. So I feel like that uh, my entrepreneurial contribution is principally on client selection. I'll say this. I've been at this a long time. I've called with some of the best bankers in the market. I've called against all the good bankers in the market. Rob's the best bank salesman by far. Terry would come over here and incubate and figure out an idea for a year and then build a sustainable business model and execute it. I'd want to know when he gets through with that and I'll go do the work for you. It's what he loves to do. Most people are great at what they love to do. You can look at me, I'm 66, say, man, that guy's old, but I mean, I hope I go a long time personally. And, and uh, beyond that, I don't mind the transition of the company to other leadership, uh, assuming they know how to do what we do. I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. You've been listening to Circle Back. To subscribe, visit ec.co slash circle back and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circle Back is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, thank you to our media partner, Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. And a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen. Script writing by Demetria Kaladimos. And a big thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. <laughs>